The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning are my two guests, my first guest being author and attorney, Olga Trujillo. She's an attorney who works with communities on issues involving domestic violence, child abuse, sexual assault, and the impact of trauma, which is their own story. Her new book is The Sum of My Parts, a survivor's guide or a survivor's story of dissociative identity disorder. By the time Olga was in kindergarten, she had already survived years of abuse and violent rape at the hands of her tyrannical father. And over the next 10 years, she developed the ability to numb herself to the constant abuse by splitting into distinct mental parts. This is called dissociative identity disorder. My second guest is the author of Big Fat Lies, Women Tell Themselves, Amy Ehrlers. Amy talks about women and the glass ceiling won't, and the fact that the glass ceiling won't break for it, uh, by itself. She's the wake-up call coach. She is on a mission to wake up women's inner superstar so they can shine bright. And she says the thing that holds women back are ourselves. According to Forbes.com, women are better investors, women at the top are better for company culture, women in the boardroom are better for the bottom line, and yet none of this reflects the number of women who are in the workforce who have CEOs who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies or who occupy board seats. So she'll be our second guest, but my first guest is Olga Trujillo. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you very much. It's really great to be here. Yeah, and uh, it's also uh, timely for you to be here, given all the uh, what's been happening at Penn State. But first, I'm going to obviously ask you about that. But let's talk about your book uh, okay. because it's you know on the you know as I'm describing it, it's it's a horrendous story. You were abused by your father, your brother by the time you were six years old. Right. Yeah, I I was um, abused by my father. Uh, the, from the first time I remember when I was three, and then my father started bringing my um, my brothers into my um, sexual abuse, um, and then I was abused by my brothers um, after that, and and into my adolescence. So, oh, give us some background on that about your family. I mean, you know, you're talking about your brothers, your father. Where was your mother in all of this? What kind of a family did you come from? Um, you know. Uh, well, I thought um, <laughs> I had thought I came from a, a really good family, um, but I had you know blocked so much of this out. Um, our family um, is from the Latino culture, um, and we grew up in an urban area. It was my mom um, spoke English and uh, Spanish and worked. Uh, my father stayed home. 
And, you know, I, I had thought it was, a, it was a good family with, you know, some discipline issues. And, um, and then later came to realize that's not the case, <laughs> that families, um, you know, the parents don't do that to kids. And my mom. I, I want to get a background of are we talking about a working class family? Were you struggling? Oh, to yeah, make no, no. It? We, were, we were below the poverty level because uh, my father wasn't able to find work because he only spoke uh, Spanish and he was unwilling to take any kind of service job. So, um, and you couldn't work in the area that we lived in um, without, you know, if you, if you didn't speak English. And um, unless you were willing to take a service job, and he just he just didn't want that kind of work. Um, so we lived below the poverty level, and we got the kind of subsistence that you know any kind of urban city would provide back in the '60s, um, which was food stamps and um, some other kinds of um, welfare benefits. So, Olga, your mother is out working. You're home with your father, who is not working. And and your brothers, your older brothers, younger brothers, give us how many brothers did you have, have and who was involved have, in all this and the sexual abuse and the physical abuse? When I have two older brothers, um, one who's three years older than I am and one who's a year and a half older than I am. And at first, when my mom started working, um, I would go next door. And there was a 72-year-old woman who also only spoke Spanish, um, and at, at, when I was three years old, when my mom started working, I only spoke Spanish. And my brothers went and stayed at, um, with some friends, and their, their mother watched my brothers. So my father didn't watch us for, you know, a good part of the time that we were, um, that my mom was working, and, um, until we started school, and then he would, you know, be home with us after school, but yeah, it was a it was totally a weird, <laughs> to say the least, a very weird place. So what happened to you? I mean, you're we're talking about a a, a young young child under the age of six. And oh I yeah, going I, back to that, and you're left alone. I assume at some point with your father, and that's when the abuse began. Do you remember the first time it happened and how you felt? Yeah, and, you know, oftentimes it didn't happen when I was alone in the house with him. Um, the first time that I have memory of it was my father was um, attacking my mom, and I could hear it in my room, and I got really scared, and I ran to help her. And at first my father um, was hitting me to get me away from him, and then I could see on his face, you know, a decision that he made to then rape me. And he did that in front of my mom. And so he did it, one, to hurt me, but then also to hurt her. So if she tried to stop him, he made it much more painful. Um, so, so my mom was living in this, in this home and experiencing a tremendous amount of trauma as well. So what I saw her do was, you know, kind of go someplace else in her head, like she had this real blank stare. It was like she wasn't there. And at that point in time, when I was fighting back with my father, it didn't take much for him to overpower me. And when he did, I panicked. 
And when I panicked, my mind did this incredible thing. Um, it took me out of my body. So cognitively, I left my body and went up to the ceiling and watched my father rape me as if it was happening to someone else. So this is what we call DID, or Dissociative Identity Disorder. Well, this is dissociation. So it starts with dissociation. But what I did was exactly that developed at that age. I had rooms in my head. And I put, after my father raped me, I put all that information, like the, you know, the physical aspects of it, the emotional aspects of it, and everything I saw in a room and closed the door and locked it. And that was the beginning of dissociative identity disorder. And this is what helped you, and I don't think help is the right word, but how you got through this constant barrage of being sexually abused. But your mother was there, and she saw this happening. And I guess my question is, and maybe a lot of people will be asking this question, or ask you this question is, here your father is at home, he's not making money, she's the one who's out there who's supporting the family, and, and why would she stay with him, with you, and allow you to be abused, and herself as well. Why didn't she leave? What? Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, well, first, my mom, it was really clear to me that if my mom had tried to leave, that my father would have killed her. And the reason I know that is because at one point in my life, I called the police. And when the police come, and this is in the 1960s. They and how old were you? I was seven. And it was because my father was attacking my mom. And when the police come, they can't communicate with my father, and they can't understand my mom, because my mom has a strong Caribbean accent. And they're not used to it. My brothers are hiding, and I'm the only one downstairs. And I open the door, and they can't communicate with anyone but me. And I know my father's going to be able to understand me, and I don't know if he's going to, you know, if he's going to, if they're going to take him away. So when they asked me what happened and they asked me to translate, I lied. And I told them that nothing had happened and that I just called them to see if they would come because I learned about them in school. So what my father did after they left was that he killed one of our dogs and he killed them in front of me. And so... That was, he didn't say he would kill me, but that was a clear message to me, that he would kill me if I did that again. And so that kind of intimidation is, is really, really powerful. And I'm really young, and I don't know how many years my mom has experienced that. But I'm guessing that she had experienced that from the beginning of their relationship. So... and. And then the other, the other thing I wanted to, um, to mention, Catherine, is it's striking to me, like you had mentioned the Penn State, and, and do you mind if I just kind of make an analogy there? No, go right ahead, because I think, I mean, obviously this is, this is exactly, you know, this yeah. is, and yeah. Okay, so in 2002, this coach is seen by another adult um, inappropriately touching other boys. And that coach, that other adult, goes to Joe Paterno and tells Joe Paterno. And Joe Paterno then goes to the athletic director and tells the athletic director. Nothing happens. They don't stop it. They don't call the police. 
Nothing happens. And why? Why? Because maybe they were shocked that they didn't know this about this guy, and they, he was part of their football family. Maybe they were afraid of their careers and the reputation of Penn State. Maybe they were afraid of being sued. I'm not sure, but, but there was Joe Paterno had an enormous amount of power and didn't do anything about it other than go to the athletic director, but didn't stop it. And so when you see that, and, and he has so much power, and he's not even in a, a family dynamic, then when you wonder why someone who lives with someone who they loved and is terrorized by them, you can see how it gives you a little bit of a sense of the, the, the intimidation, the power, the fear, the shock that can happen to someone when they're betrayed by someone they're close to. And that's essentially what my father did. He betrayed all of us. And my mom coped in the best way she knew, which was to go away in her head, to go to work, bring the money home, and, you know, and then there were the cultural factors that kind of play in. But when you compare it to, to what happened at Penn State, it kind of makes a little bit more sense. You know, it, it does. When you, I guess the whole issue, we say as a culture that we protect our children and we're concerned right. with families and that's what we do and children are the most important, uh, you, you know, element in our lives. But in a sense, we're doing exactly the opposite. And right. it, it, maybe it taps into all the stuff we don't want to deal with as a culture or as individuals. I it's too right. shameful. It's too, it, it's too, um, it's too frightening. It's, it has, there's so much stuff, I guess, that, that's associated, emotional stuff for, for us as a culture, as individuals. We don't want to deal with it, and we don't. Yeah, and what people do is they, they start thinking about the person who perpetrated the crime and think, oh, we don't want to ruin his career, we don't want to ruin his life, and they don't think about the child. You know, so, sorry, I'm kind of, I'm talking about Penn State now. <laughs> well, I think that's important because, I mean, you've experienced this yourself, so having, you know, discussing this with you, I think, is, is really critical. I mean, and, and relating, you know, the Penn State, what happened at Penn State um, to what happened to you, because I think it is all related. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see the, the parallels. And, and then you add a lot more dynamics and a lot more fear to the fact that it's happening in our home. And our father, my father, is the one who is terrorizing our home. And then you add cultural, the cultural um, roles that were traditional in our family was that my father was in charge. So and, you have the and, whole macho thing, which is in the Latin culture. I mean, right? Yeah, but you know, what's really interesting is that mach- machismo is actually... Um, it means that, that you're a gentleman, that you protect and provide for your family. And when my, in, in, in the first chapter of my book, I talk about my relationship with my next-door neighbor, who is 72 years old and from El Salvador. And she came over after a couple years of watching me and, and confronted my father based on our cultural beliefs. And she said to him that he's supposed to provide and protect for our, our family, not, you know, not beat us, not, not treat us badly, and, and appeal to his religious beliefs because we grew up Catholic. 
and that, you know, to repent his sins, and God will forgive him. And he struck her and told her that she cannot have any contact with us again. And that was devastating for me because she was a lifeline like no one else had been in my life. Well, you say that there are people in your, you know, in your book you, that there are people who did come along who um, were helpful to you, who and, and um, you know, kind people in your life. Who were they, and who, you know, that 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 were that were there for you? Well, the first person, and the really, and and maybe um, the first person was my next door neighbor, and. She was 72 years old. She was alone during the day because her daughter and granddaughter worked and were in college. And she was wonderful. And she, was, she had very little education. She worked in the farm fields of El Salvador. And she just loved me and, and unconditionally, and I could see it in her eyes. And, um, and through her, I created um, an aspect of my mind, you know, because you, as you go through the book, you see, like, I'm holding on to these really wonderful things, these wonderful feelings in my, in my hand. And then at night when I'm scared, I put my hand, you know, in a, my hand's in a fist, and that's how I hold on to it, and I put my fist to my ear to remember what I've been told. Well, a lot of that was started with my next-door neighbor, because she told me she loved me. She told me she knew my father was doing things to me that weren't right because we lived in a duplex, and she could hear that. And she, she taught me um, strategies without really ever saying, oh, here's a strategy to help you, you know, stay out of harm's way, but really just saying when you get scared, run and hide. And, and she taught me how to pray the rosary, and, which is a really hard thing to do with a three-year-old. <laughs> And, and she told me to take the rosary with her. And no, that was a great, great tool because... So you I had was, somebody to hold on to. I mean, exactly. there, was just, there was somebody there, fortunately for you, obviously. But what about the school... I mean, you're talking about 10 years of abuse. And, right. Oh, and, yeah, even more, actually. Or more. Yeah. So you are getting into, you know, 10 years. You start off, you're in your teenage years. What about the school system? What about... Were they, I mean, I know this was... In the, what in the seventies? So. Yeah, by that point, I'm in the. It's in the seventies, and the school system. Um, well, okay. So when I lost my next door neighbor because she confronted my father, I learned that I can't let people know or I will lose them. So then, when I, I'm in school, I have a second grade teacher that's noticing and asking me questions, and I'm lying to her. And instead, and so, and she's talking to my mom on a regular basis, and my mom is also lying to her. And instead, you know, what she does is she tries to keep me after school, takes me to the convent with her, um, and, you know, tries to keep me out of her home until my mom can come get me. And then in, in junior so high and high school, I had teachers that, that clearly knew that something was going on and talked to me about promiscuous behavior because they thought that I was exhibiting promiscuous behavior, um, which is a, a flag for kids that are being sexually abused. Um, gave me refuge, um, connected with me. Uh, they just, and one teacher, you know, actually talked to my mom about the fact that she thought I had been sexually attacked. 
And, you know, my mom asked her to leave. My mom couldn't go there. So the cover-up involved the whole family, you, your mother, your father, and I assume your brothers as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then, when you know, when I started to heal, I started to tell my mom a little bit of what I remembered, and my mom told me she wasn't surprised. And at one, and on, on the one hand, when I was starting to heal, I really needed some validation. So I held on to that. And she reminded me that my brother had been arrested when he was 16 for raping a girl in the neighborhood. So all of a sudden, I felt like, okay, so this stuff is real. And then later, it got too scary for my family. And, you know, and they, they just couldn't deal with it, and they wanted me to stop you know, my therapy process and stuff. And so I had, to, I had to distance myself from my family. Where is your family now? Where are your brothers, your mother, your father? And how do you feel, two questions, and how do you feel about, how do you feel about them now since you've gone through the recovery process? I mean, you're an attorney. I mean, <laughs> it's funny because when I was in second grade, I wanted to be a nun. And here I am, an attorney. Well, maybe they're similar. <laughs> I know. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, well, my, my mom lives in the same area. My mom and one of my brothers live in the same area where I grew up, which is an urban area on the East Coast. And my other brother um, lives in the Northeast. And my father died when I was 11. And see, that's when my brothers really got bad is after my father died, because he controlled how they um, were involved in my sexual abuse. Um, and then when he died, they just had free range. And um, so I've, I've done a lot of healing, <laughs> and, um, and I've had to have done a lot of healing to be at peace. Like, I don't, I'm not, I don't have a relationship with my brothers, and I have a very, very tenuous relationship with my mom and it's only because you know she can go there sometimes but she's got this coping mechanism in her head that she hasn't done any healing and neither have my brothers and so I can't have a healthy relationship with them so I don't have a relationship with them and I and with my mom it's very very tenuous I I I hear from her every few months or so and it's not really a you know, the relationship doesn't really go both ways. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I don't hate them or anything. I, I feel really kind of sorry for them because I know what it feels like to heal and to be really happy. You know, this how do you forgive? I mean, I know people who are listening, listeners, maybe those who are being, maybe, you know, come from families who, where they've been abused. How, and I'm listening to your story, and how can how can you how do you ever forgive any one of those members of your family? Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, forgiveness is really complicated because we talk about forgiveness as if we're doing something for someone else, but really we're doing something for ourselves when we forgive because we're letting go of that rage and that anger and that hate, and that's toxic. And if you're living in that. You're living in the past, and, it's, and it interferes with your ability to have peace and, and to be happy. And I really wanted to be happy. And, 
um, and to be happy, I needed to to go back and have in, for myself an understanding of how my father could be that way, how my mom could be the way she was, and how my brothers could do the things that they did. And once I could put that together, I could let go. I think that's such an important point that the forgiveness is for you so that you can go on. And you're right. People think of forgiveness as, you know, it's going to, you're forgiving, it has to do with the other person. Yeah. But it has to do with you letting go, and then you can go on to have good relationships yourself. And, and, exactly. Yeah. So now tell us, do you, your relationship now or your, the, the, the people that you're close to or intimate relationships, are they good ones for you? Are you able to do that? Yeah, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of work, but I'm in a I'm in a wonderful long-term relationship. I live on a small farm in Wisconsin where I have dogs, which is really important to me because I I was able to take that back. Um where we have cats and chickens and bees and all sorts of stuff and it's a really peaceful place. And I never thought I'd get here. I never thought I could have an intimate relationship and trust someone because trust is a big issue for someone like me and people who are betrayed by the people who were supposed to take care of them will all you know will have trouble trusting and and it's a challenge for me and i have to work really hard at it and i have wonderful friends um that i'm real close to that know about you know know about my DID know about my past and um you know, because it comes with, like, some limitations, and, and they help me with that. As an attorney and as someone, I mean, you're doing all kinds of things. You're, you know, working on the community level with children who are abused, sexual assault, all of that. Um, how does your experience help them? You know, I'm a social worker. I have dealt with children who have been abused, but I obviously did not come from the same, not, not, the same personal perspective that you have. Mm-hmm. So you must be able to add a whole new dimension to that to, to help these kids. And I, I take it's not only girls either, it's boys as well. Right, exactly. And, um, well, so what I do is um, I take my personal experience and my professional experience and I wrap them together. So I help people um, to see from an inside-out perspective what trauma feels like, why people might have a flat affect when they're talking about something really horrible, or why they might stare off into space, or why they might not remember everything. Um, Because a lot of times we base our um, decisions, you know, on whether they're telling the truth or not, on some things that are really signs of trauma. And so I I can take that and I can go to law enforcement and do training for them so that when they respond, they can see the signs of trauma and they know something's happened and they have a different lens and assess credibility differently. I can go and I can work with prosecutors and help them figure out, okay, what happens when I've got a kid on the stand who gets triggered? You know, and then I can, you know, talk to them from the inside out and help them think about ways to prepare kids or, or women who've been sexually assaulted or men who've been sexually assaulted, you know, to, to prepare them for that trial experience or maybe to have alternative approaches like, like closed-circuit television instead of having the person facing the person that, that 
that rape them. So I take what I know professionally and what I know personally, and I try to make it as accessible as possible. And then, and then I, I meet with people who've experienced what I've experienced, and we talk about it in a way that I'm hoping that, you know, they can see, like, that, that there's always going to be a struggle, but there, there's this great place, at the, at, you know, along the way. I think that all the publicity, even though it's painful, and even though I think some people see it as somewhat sensational, uh, from my and, and, and I, I'd like you to comment on this. I think it's a, a really it's a good thing because I think it really literally brings this horrific stuff out into the open, and there'll be less and less people who will not be afraid to speak out because it makes it real for everyone and for all of us and particularly for people who are directly involved with, with kids and who have access to them and may see things like this, you know, even with the Penn State thing, um, I think it's good to get it out, and it's so important to do that because to me it seems like, and, and this may be wrong too, but they are, there's more of it happening. Maybe there are just more people and, and maybe the media covers uh, these incidents more. I'm not sure. I hope that that's, yeah. The, yeah, I don't know. I think it is. I think we're hearing more about it because of incidents like, like what we're hearing in Penn State. And actually, you know, I have to say, like, when I first started hearing about what happened in Penn State, I didn't like the way the media was covering it because it was all about Joe Paterno and what a great guy he was and what a great coach he was. And I kept thinking, wow, what about the victims? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what happened. them so I long? That, and, yeah. But now they're really getting to that. It takes them time. It takes us all time. I guess we all have to be patient. And... We have to say goodbye. I mean, I, I could obviously I could continue talking with you, and, and uh, maybe we'll have you on the show again. Um, it's, I just want to make sure that listeners can go to your website, Olga Trujillo, T R U J I L L O dot com, for more information about you. You can buy your book because it just came out, The Sum of My Parts. We covered a little bit of it, A Survivor's Story of Dissociative Identity Disorder. Um, and you, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. But, Olga, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. You're welcome, and, th- and thank you for having me. It was great to have you. Thank you. I loved it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> have a good day. You too. Okay, thanks. We have our next guest coming up. We're going to take a short break because uh, Amy is ready. She, Amy Ehlers, I, I have Ehlers, we'll have to ask her how to pronounce it. She's the author of Big Fat Lies, Women Tell Themselves. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, voiceamericavariety.com, and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Amy Ehlers. She's a certified life coach, the CEO of Wake Up Call Coaching, and the co-creator of Inner Mean Girl Reform School. She, her new book is Big Fat Lies Women Tell Themselves. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. Thanks so much, Catherine. Great. Well, I am very curious, um, although I am sitting here with your book, so I do know Big Fat Lies Women Tell Themselves, and uh, the premise of your book, I guess, is that we women get themselves into uh, very negative kinds of situations because we have all these lies we tell ourselves and they're very negative stuff, and that's why we don't get ahead or why we can't get ahead. Um, well, yeah, and even even more importantly, actually, sometimes the big fat lies are the things that are driving us to get ahead, but then we aren't, we get ahead and then we're not happy. So it's really about the big fat lies that are beating us down in the way that we're so incredibly hard on ourselves and isn't it time, ladies, that we give ourselves a break and start getting our happiness on? All right, so what are some of those big fat lies? Let's get right down to it. What do we yeah. tell ourselves? What are the lies we tell ourselves to get ahead and then they hold us back in the end anyway? Yeah, well, I think one of the big fat lies is big fat lie number 23. If I keep racing, I'll finally catch up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like that experience, and I know I am guilty of it. I have oh, clients that are guilty of it. This experience where we think at, at one point there's going to be this magic moment in time when we finally have every single thing done. And it's like, I don't know who invented that big fat lie, but the truth is life exists with undone items, with incomplete items on your to-do list, with unanswered emails, with phone messages that you have to pick up. This is, you know, our struggle as modern-day women. And so let's start understanding that if we think that we're somehow going to get caught up, we're not going to get caught up. It's really about being present and being in the moment and having your happiness now. Amy, is this something that doesn't happen to men? It just happens to us women, and if so, why? What a great question. Uh, you know, it does happen for men. Men absolutely have inner critics just like women that are feeding them big, fat lies. Um, but men lie actually to themselves about different things is what I've discovered. And I will admit my dad has read my book, and he's like, Aim, I have to tell you, I think I've thought almost every single one of these big, fat lies. So I think that there definitely is some common things that are just human nature. And then I think there's some specific ones that women in particular are hard on themselves about and some specific things that men in particular are hard on themselves about. 
So in your book, we're talking about the ones that women really hone in on, and that's an example, the one you just gave. Okay, give us another one. What else do we do? What else? Well, big fat lie number one in the book, you know, there's 59 big fat lies in the book. The big fat lie number one, I chose this one because I think it's the most common one, which is I am not enough or I'm not good enough. I don't think there's a woman alive today who has not at one point or another had their inner critic saying that big fat lie to them. It can also show up as, you know, who the heck do you think you are? <laughs> you know, which is really your inner critic's way of saying, I'm not good enough, you're not good enough. And when we allow that big fat lie to run the show in our life, it, it ends up, you know, having us go down paths that are not going to bring us fulfillment and where we're trying to prove our worth instead of claiming our worth. I think that's an excellent one because, and I've mentioned this on my show before, because mm. men really do the opposite. They <laughs> say I'm good enough when they're not good enough, and they think they're good enough, and they get ahead even if they're not good enough. It's sort of the opposite. Or, and I think that, uh, you know, whether it's at work, and women are always, I, I, you know, I have to keep plugging because I'm not good enough, and finally when I'm good enough, then I'll be able to go on and ask for a raise or ask for, uh, yeah, or ask yeah. for a better position, whereas men, eh, you know, they don't care. Yeah, it's true. It, it, there is, I always um, admire with my husband, I, I really um, got very curious about this with my husband and with all of my male, the male clients that I've coached, the men that I've coached over the years, is, you know, that core belief seems to be in there, that they are enough. And like you said, sometimes they can even have false bravado, um, where their ego has gotten out of control and where it's inflated it. And that's certainly not what we're going for as women. We really want to have that core sense of self-worth, of self-respect, of self-compassion and self-love. And I think that men can oftentimes be more compassionate with themselves than women are. They give themselves a break. And I think it's time for us as women to start giving ourselves a break and start giving each other a break, too, and, and start being really supportive and compassionate of one another. Great advice, and I think we need to make sure that we help our daughters to do this. Oh, my gosh. You know, I'm, I have a four-year-old little girl um, named Annabella. She is the light of my life. And for me, my, it's, it's like my game got upped uh, got majorly when I became a mom. And when I, I was one of those rare moms these days where I didn't find out the gender of my baby until she was born. And the minute I was holding her in my arms and knew that I was the mom now of a little girl, I, it really became the time for me it galvanized me to make sure and certain that I was walking my talk and to say, I get that she is not going to say what I say. She's going to do what I do. And so it's really important for us to be modeling this for our little girls, absolutely, whether you're a mom yourself or an auntie or just the influence that we have as women on little girls. I think people underestimate the, what happens when a little girl sees a grown-up woman um, even in a restaurant, that's a stranger. We have amazing impact on the little girls in the world. I, I agree with you. I, you know, one of the things that you also, I mean, that you cover in the book is the, the whole issue of power and women. Let's talk about that. Mm. Uh, women who, what about powerful women? What about women, what, celebrities? Do you, do you think women who ha we see as successful, for instance? And uh, Absolutely. You know, I've coached, you know, women from all different walks of life, from people that were struggling with all of those external things, you know, the people that were, quote-unquote, broke, um, and really, really struggling um, in their lives. And I've also coached the doctors and the lawyers and the VPs and the CEOs and, and even a few well-known people out there. 
And I have to tell you that it's the human experience. It has nothing to do with our external circumstances. And in fact, I've even noticed that sometimes the women that seem the most together on the outside are really struggling on the inside because they have the inner critic. Um, I, I co-founded a program called Inner Mean Girl Reform School with the amazing <laughs> Christina Rilo. And we have 17 different archetypes of inner mean girls, as we call her. And uh, we found that women that suffer with the inner achievement junkie that, you know, are constantly pushing and pushing and pushing themselves to accomplish more and more and more. These are the women that have all of those external things. They have the house and the cars and the clothes and the shoes and all of those things together that oftentimes they are so miserable on the inside. They never give themselves a break. They're really falling prey to big fat line number 13. Self-criticism is effective. If I, if I release being hard on myself, then I'm going to fall into this you know, whole of being lazy and never getting anything done. And so they drive themselves incredibly hard. And women that are listening right now, if you can relate to this, you know, it is, it is time for you to get that lightening up will not make your ambition dry up. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about self-love and self-compassion and loving yourself enough to give yourself a break. And so then aren't we ultimately talking about happiness? If you've got to give yourself a break, you, you, you may be happier. Yes. Uh, yeah, because success and happiness really don't go hand in hand. They don't. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think it's about defining what is the true meaning of success. When you're on your last breath in life, really consider this. Everyone listening, let's look at this. It's a, it's a hard thought to think about, but really, on the last breath of your life, what will have you look back and say, that was a life well lived? And is it about the, the money? Is it about the career? Is it about the family? Is it, what is it really about for you? And really creating your own definition of success. And when you really come down to it, I think the truth is that true success is feeling fulfilled, like you're contributing in the world, and, and having some happiness and some fun and joy in your life. What are some of the other lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from doing that? Because if we've got uh, 59 of them and we've only covered three of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the, the book is divided up into sections. So there's big fat lies about your worth. And these are some of the mama big fat lies, the mother led like the I'm not enough. I'm a total fraud. I'm unlovable. I'm damaged goods. I don't belong. I'm powerless. The world is against me. Big fat lies like that. And then there's the hot topic, and, beca- and this is one of the areas that women are particularly hard on themselves, and I'm sure people can guess what I'm going to say, big fat lies about body and self-care. Big fat lie number 14 is I'm too fill-in-the-blank. What is it that you're beating yourself up? Are you too fat? Are you too old? Are you too tall? Are you too ugly? You know, the, our inner critics are brutal, and this is really a main difference between men and women. Guys are way easier on themselves. There, I actually recently heard, Catherine, about this interesting study where they asked women to look at pictures of different women's bodies and to point to the picture and choose the picture that most closely resembled their own body. And women, 90% of the time, chose a body that was multiple sizes bigger than how they really were. So they have this you know, body image that was morphed saying, I, I actually am bigger than I, than I really am. With men, they did the exact opposite. They saw themselves as actually trimmer and more fit than they actually were. That's an interesting study, and I have. Isn't seen that, that interesting? But I, I have to tell so you, it's not and so, you know, we're so hard on ourselves about the way our bodies look. And you know, I have a whole bunch of data in my book about 
you know, why this has occurred and that it's time for us to really take our power back, ladies, because I don't know a woman today who doesn't have, you know, that's over 25 that doesn't have cellulite and wrinkles. Can we just knock it off already and just decide that it's okay? Um, we're, you know, we're really going after these ideals that are just unattainable. And I think the other piece is, I mean, how many women will, I'm too fat to f- apply for a job. When I lose 10 pounds, then I can do such and such. Yeah. I mean, you never hear a man saying, when I lose 10 pounds, then I can go out and play golf. When right. I lose 10 pounds, then I can put, buy a bathing suit, then I can go to the park. I mean, uh, you know, and these are the kinds of things, I mean, that really do hold us back, that whole body image thing that we don't seem to be able to, 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 to cope with. Or, yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, just think about, Ladies, listening, you know, how much time do you spend obsessing about your body? How much energy are you using up thinking about maybe the pair of pants are not fitting in or like you said, the, you know, hopefully one day I'll be able to do that and then if I lose the 10 pounds, then I'm going to go ahead and go get on Match.com or go on a date or ask that guy out or whatever it is. What are you putting off and how much energy are you wasting in that spin? And there really comes a decision point. Women keep waiting for the magic pill that's going to make them stop thinking this way. But the truth is, it's an active, conscious decision of, I will not let this rob me of my life anymore. And well, you, you said something that I think right really... Right now. You said something that needs to be reiterated, Amy, because I think that whole concept, if you are spending energy yeah. doing this, then you're not spending energy on other stuff. We only have so much energy. Yes. And if you choose to use that energy to, to do what we've just been talking about, focusing on you know whether you have an extra wrinkle or an extra 10 pounds and prevents you from doing all the things you need to be doing, um, then you're not spending your energy on the positive stuff. And that's really, that, that really does hold us back. It does. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And I think we can see it so easily in other women around us. And yet when we know that between 5 and 10 million women and girls suffer from eating disorders and that twice as many American women as men are affected by depression, you know, there's something really going on here, ladies. And I think that the, um, the body image is a big part of it. I think we've been fed since the moment we were born as little girls two very contradictory messages. The first is you can do anything. We've been fed that message since we were little girls or depending, depending on your age when that message really started getting infiltrated into our, our psyche and into the current of um, modern-day American society. And then you look at the contradictory message we've been fed, which is essentially you are not enough. And so it's crazy-making when you think about it. You know, you can do anything, you're not enough. You can do anything, you're not enough. That's crazy-making. And I think this is one of the reasons why we have so many eating disorders and so much depression going on. It's, it, it's, it, we've been asked to do a lot and then also been fed all of these big fat lies that cut us down. And so it's time that we take our power back. It's time that we start going into our inner wisdom and letting our inner wisdom guide our lives, and, uh, lives instead of the external um, sources out there that are going to be feeding us contradictory messages. Well, you've been talking about a disconnect in terms of what you're told as a little girl. You can do anything, and then the big fat lies, well, you're really not good enough. So do you think that women in past eras, past times, let's say my generation, because I think that's a different generation than yours, mm. were happier? 
because they were told they can't do it and you're not good enough to do it. So it was consistent. Uh, you know, in my generation, it was like you can do certain things, but your brothers can do more because well, they are men or they're going to be men. Right. Uh, well, I'm yeah. curious for you, how do, what do you think? Um, from your vantage point of having grown up in a generation where you didn't have as many opportunities, did you find that women were happier? Well, it's interesting. My, I'm the baby boomer generation. Yeah. And I'm in probably, and, and you're, are you Gen X? Uh, yeah, I'm Gen X. Right, I'm, Gen um, X. Yeah, just and I have a mother who's a traditionalist. She's the older generation. And in certain ways, and I, I, I'm not sure about my, the baby boomers because we're the ones who started the whole upheaval, uh, you know, about what women should and should, you know, the opportunities for women. Yes. But her generation, the traditionalists, I think in certain ways they were happier mm. because their roles were very clearly defined. Their aspirations were, you know, you weren't expected to be successful in the outside world, you know, and there weren't opportunities for you to do that. You were the, you know, because your role was so clearly defined and you stayed home and you took care of the kids and your husband did, you know, he, he, he had the job, but he, or, Right. also was the one to deal with the external world. You dealt with the internal or the emotional. In certain ways, maybe they were happier. Not better. I'm not, happy doesn't mean better, but it may, right. it, they may have been happier or less sat, dissatisfied. Well, you know, and it's, it's interesting, right, because I think also when I look at my, my grandmother's generation um, that did live in that time where it was like either you were a full-time stay-at-home mom or homemaker or you were a nurse or a teacher, essentially, were the options out there. And my grandmother herself was a nurse. Um, you know, when I look at that, I can also see that that generation didn't talk as much about their feelings. So it definitely wasn't something that you necessarily would talk about if you weren't as happy. And when you look at then, you know, all sorts of housewives and the addictions with the pharmaceuticals and the way that, you know, it was like if you felt that stirring inside of you, you were just given a, a pill to make that stirring go away. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, studies are showing there's this amazing study called The Paradox of Declining Female Happiness, which has shown us that in the last 35 years that women's um, power has increased. All of their li- our lives have, has, have improved by all of, of the objective measures but the subject of measures of our well-being has drastically decreased over the last 35 years. So our power, our choices, our opportunities have increased, and our happiness and our well-being has decreased. And I, I think that, like you're saying, that there is something about the simplicity of saying the, your choices are limited. And then there's something that occurs when all of those opportunities, all of those choices open up. And I really, when we look at our plates as women, it's like every, all of this stuff has gotten added to our plates, but nothing's been taken off. Okay. When you look at American households today, women are still more responsible for the housework. They're working the full-time job. They're, you know, helping to raise the children, and then they're also supposed to do all of the housework. So it's like we've, our careers have gotten put on our plates, but nothing has actually t- been taken off of our plates. And that's so an I think that that's, that's a huge reason for the stress that we're feeling and a huge reason for the lack of happiness that we're feeling. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point because then you are now we're being judged in like three or four different We have to be the best mother, right. the best professional, right. uh, now the best caretaker for the older generation. Right. And, so, and we have to be a perfect in all of those areas. It's just added to the stress. That's true. Right. Well, and I think, uh, you know, when you look at our journey over the last hundred years and us banding together for the right to vote, 
and then banding together so that we could have more choices in the world. I think that those um, movements were stirred by dissatisfaction, were stirred by feeling like we deserve these opportunities, and it, it was a very external focus. And it kind of brings me back to big fat lie number 12 in the book, when I get blank, then I'll be happy. And I think as a gender, we thought, when we get the power, then we'll be happy. When we have the opportunities, then we'll be happy. And one day in the future, when we are finally are making dollar for dollar in the workplaces the same as men, then we'll be happy. But guess what? We won't be. The studies are showing it. The truth is that those external things are not going to provide us happiness. They will get us power. They will get us more opportunities. But they're not necessarily tied to our happiness. So I really believe that the pendulum is swinging towards us looking at our internal focus, us having an internal focus. And I, I've really seen this amongst my clients when we take all of those pressures out from the external and start, you know, instead of saying, I'm going to wait for these external things to change and then I'll be happy, I'm going to actually decide to change my internal life, to change my relationship with myself so that I can come from a real base of happiness. And that is really the ticket. I really believe that that's the ticket. I've, in my own life, I've seen it. In thousands of clients that I've worked with over the last 11 years that I've seen it, when we really start claiming our happiness from the inside out, that is when um, we live fulfilling lives and when uh, these studies will start turning around and women will start finding that happiness again. So in the last three minutes that we have together, mm. tell us your, give us like what, how you changed it around for yourself so that, mm. so that you were able to experience that inner strength, and that's what makes you happy. Oh, thanks for asking, Catherine. You know, when I, I mentioned when I became a mom that the game, it was a game changer for me. And one of the things that I have really done is I take time out every single day. Some days it's five minutes, some days it's 30 minutes. I take that time out every single day and create the space to nurture my relationship with myself. Some days that means going on a run with my dog. Some days that means sitting in silence and just breathing. Some days that means turning on my favorite song and having a dance party. Whatever it is, but with the clear, conscious intention of connecting into myself, connecting into my inner wisdom, connecting into God, the universe, source energy, whatever it is that you call it, so that on a daily basis I am really working on building a positive, nurturing relationship with myself. Because I realize that, the, you know, the only relationship I can count on in my life and the only relationship anybody can count on their, in their life is the relationship with themselves. And yet we spend so much time, you know, comparing our worst to everyone else's best, so much time really um, being mean to ourselves, being cruel to ourselves, being hard on ourselves. And so if we just take out a little bit of time every day, to start nurturing a loving and compassionate relationship with ourselves, that has shifted my life, and that is really the key and the ticket to beginning a relationship that's filled with self-respect and self-esteem and self-love. Well, that's great advice, and I do want to say to listeners, and I'm going to do a, a plug for you because, you know, if you're not able to do that, because some of us can't do that, if you can't do it, you can go to wakeupcallcoaching.com and... Uh, <laughs> Maybe you need a little coaching. You know, I mean, some of us are able to do that, and, and it, it, I think that's true. I, I try to do that, and I, I think I do every day. I think yeah. that's, that's great advice. But you may need some coaching. You may need well, yeah, and, and, you know, the thing is, I'll just say one quick other thing, is that you can do it. You're just choosing not to. Yeah. 
for choosing not to make yourself a priority. And, and I get why. There's so many excuses why. It's not about finding time. It's about creating space. And if you wait till you have the time, it will never happen. <laughs> so it's about Amy, you know, great having you on the show this morning, and uh, I'm going to mention your book one more time: "Big Fat Lies Women Tell Themselves." You can buy it at online, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. You got it. And the website for the book is BigFatLiesBook.com, and there's seven um, free bonus gifts there at BigFatLiesBook.com. Thank you so much, Catherine. Great. Thank you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, and I'm your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I hope you had a nice morning. Um, Have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.